Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. If you don't, there's an insert in your bulletin that will have the text on it. I just want to let you know here at the outset that this may go a little longer than normal today. I, I don't know why that happens. It, it seems like um, on First Communion Sunday, I always have a text that seems to require a little bit longer sermon. So I, I, I know that we have the Lord's Supper today. I don't do that to torture you. I don't do it to, you know, stretch out for no reason. I know it's hard to sit and listen and be patient. So please forgive me if this goes a little longer than normal. Almighty God is not only worthy of, but requires pure and perfect worship. In fact, in John 4, our Lord Jesus revealed that his Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The problem is that such perfect worship cannot come from within us because our sinfulness has irreparably defiled us to the point or to the extent that even when the desire to worship God and please Him comes into contact with our defiled hearts, our defiled flesh, the result is idolatry. When we realize that we can't please God on our own or give Him the worship He so deserves, we decide to create standards that we can meet. And so we create substitutes or additions to God's Word in the form of traditions and morals and things that we can manage. And through strict adherence to those things, we come to think that we are pleasing Him and worshiping Him. That our worship, which is actually on our own terms is acceptable to Him. As though the problem between us and God is primarily a matter of behavior and outward rituals and outward appearances. But we don't need corrected. We need cleansed. In fact, our misguided belief that we can somehow please God on our own terms doesn't make us more progressively holy or righteous or moral. Jesus reveals in our text this morning, shockingly, that it makes us hypocrites who remain too defiled on the inside to genuinely draw near to God or to worship Him at all. Our traditions and man-made rules are often the means by which we continue to worship ourselves and cover up our idolatry. In this economy, even good things become replacements for true worship and true communion with God. In Mark 7, Jesus indicted the Pharisees and scribes as hypocrites, according to Isaiah's prophecy, regarding those who worship God falsely from only their lips and not their hearts, by means of their traditions that voided the Word of God. He then reveals that such defilement was not caused by what was on the outside of the people, but by what comes from within them. Jesus Christ reveals that we are not made clean before God and able to worship Him perfectly by observing spiritual traditions or our outward behavior. Instead, Jesus must cleanse us from the inside out. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank You for Your perfect Word. God, overcome all that I am that would get in the way of this text and your word in it. Please watch over my mind and watch over my mouth. Please watch over the ears and the heart of everyone who will hear, who is listening this morning. God, be the center of these next moments we ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first five verses of Mark 7. Now, When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do, your, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's about 90 miles from Jerusalem to Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus presently was, which gives us a clue as to just how determined the Pharisees and scribes were to observe Jesus and confront him. That's how far they would travel to do it. There's a shift 
in Mark's tone as we enter chapter 7. Up to this point, other than the parables in chapters 3 and 4, really, uh, he hasn't focused too much on the actual teaching of Jesus. But here, another interaction, another dispute with these religious leaders provides the opportunity for us to hear Jesus teach again. Throughout this gospel, Mark has subtly but increasingly identified Jerusalem as the center of opposition to Jesus. It's there that it's going to climax and will lead to his death on the cross just outside the city. And here in this text, that's particularly important because Jesus is going to preach from Isaiah 29 in his argument with them, which speaks of Jerusalem as Ariel, this once glorious city of David, that God is going to come and set himself against Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus marks the true state of all Israel's heart before God. In verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes are upset because they notice that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. This is not a concern about hygiene. The washing they're referring to is symbolic. The amount of water the Pharisees would have used to wash their hands wasn't enough to promote good hygiene anyway. They, they did it to fulfill a ritual, the tradition of the elders, as it says in the text, that had been prescribed by Jewish leaders in former times. Mark explains all of this. You see that parenthesis there at the beginning of verse 3. He's explaining it for the benefit of his Gentile audience in Rome. In verses 3 to 5, the Pharisees are not really upset with Jesus' disciples. They're upset with Jesus. Why do your disciples behave this way? Right? Rabbis were considered responsible for the actions of their disciples. They're holding Jesus responsible for breaking the tradition of the elders. The disputes are always over matters of law. They complained about the people Jesus chose to have table fellowship with. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, they took issue with the fact that he healed on the Sabbath. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, so much so that they began there to plot his death. And the dispute continues. Well, what's the issue here? What is it this time? God gave regulations for ritual cleanliness in the Old Testament law, but there weren't very many, and they weren't very hard to follow, relatively speaking. One example is how the priests of Israel were required to wash their hands before they entered the holy place and offered sacrifices, but there was no law given by God that required ordinary people to go through a ritual cleansing before they ate, before they had bread. But over time... The rabbis who interpreted the law of God had added to the requirements of the law to the point that their regulations went well beyond the law that God had actually given to the people. The Jews had the halakha, which included the oral teachings of the rabbis, and this is what the Pharisees were talking about. This is what they're referring to when they spoke of the tradition of the elders. All the principles and regulations the rabbis had added to the law were passed on orally from generation to generation as part of this halakha until even the 3rd century A.D., when everything was compiled into the Mishnah, which is really the bulk of the Jewish Talmud at that time. So there was the actual written law of God to the people of Israel that they were to obey. But there was also this oral tradition that carried as much, if not more, everyday weight, so to speak, in the minds of the Jewish people. In particular, of course, the Pharisees. Jesus never contradicted the law. Jesus went against this oral tradition every day. It seems like 25% of the Mishnah was devoted to ritual cleanliness and purity. That means a quarter of their religion had to do with making yourself outwardly clean enough to present yourself to God and worship him as he demands. The, excuse me, the Pharisees believed that salvation came from ethnic separation. They were saved by keeping themselves clean from any contamination from unbelievers and sinners, right? That's why they had established all these rites. That was the purpose. And R.C. Sproul talks about how the oral traditions prescribe rituals for achieving different levels even of cleanliness. The first level was reached by following these practices, like washing one's hands before eating bread. The second level of purification was much harder to achieve. This is the level Mark is talking about in verse 4. When a person would come back from the marketplace, wash there, that requires ritual cleansing. It actually refers to full immersion of the body in water. You had to take a bath after you went shopping, is what this means. And Mark adds that there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
It just went on and on. And that is what happens when people are obsessed with controlling others. They begin to chip away at every facet of a person's life until that person is so nervous about sinning that they can hardly move, hardly do anything. The Pharisees would comment on the law. Then they'd write a policy about the law. Eventually the policy becomes a regulation. And then that regulation becomes as binding on the conscience as the actual written law of God. We still do this today. We still do this today. It can happen in a society. It can happen in a church. Our own church covenant and constitution cannot have man-made rules in them. We cannot make rules for people to keep that bind their conscience where the Lord does not bind the conscience. It's not wisdom. It's dangerous. It's deadly. The righteousness God requires and by which he is glorified will never be produced by man-made regulations or additions to his word. It doesn't matter how pious, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned, it doesn't matter how seemingly wise it is. We will never make rules to make us righteous enough to stand before God. He is way more holy than our minds can conceive of. What Mark is describing here is true legalism. Legalism takes many forms, but when people in a place of religious authority in other people's lives start to try to bind people's consciences where God has left them free, adding human boundaries or regulations to God's commandment, often the worst kind of legalism is the result. What's amazing is that by adding to the law, we're actually subtracting from it. We lose sight of what God was actually concerned about by replacing it with what we think should be the main concern. You see how demeaning that is to him, how disrespectful it is to him. Legalism is blasphemous. Majoring in minors is sinful and dangerous. This is how we come to give our devotion to our own traditions and our own regulations. This is how we become idolaters in the church, beloved. There are corners of Christianity where true devotion to God is defined by things like not wearing lipstick, or not playing cards, or not dancing, or not going to the movies, or not drinking alcohol, or being a patriot, or being a liberal, as if these things have anything to actually do with the kingdom of God. These things not only obscure what God calls authentic righteousness, they make light of it. As one commentator observed, it's much easier to refrain from wearing lipstick than it is to refrain from being prideful. It's easier to not play cards or not go to the movies or make sure we keep under God in the pledge than it is to actually love our enemies. Right? Like Jesus actually commands us to do. See, we know we can't obey that. When we hear the command to love our enemies, when we hear the command to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us, we immediately know when we hear the law that we cannot do it. And so instead of letting it crush us and run to Jesus for mercy and help because we can't do what he's commanded, we say we'll change the rules a little bit into something we can obey, then we'll feel righteous. But righteousness doesn't come from within us. We know we can't obey the true commandments. That's why legalism exists. Because when our inability to be righteous encounters our desire to be righteous, we often replace God's word with our own so we can declare ourselves holy by our own standards. What God actually requires doesn't leave room for us to be overly concerned about petty or secondary or tangential issues. It's enough what he's commanded. There's no need to add more to it. That God be true and every man a liar. His word is sufficient. In their quest to guarantee their own righteousness and that of the people, they had turned the holy law of God into a cacophony of petty, man-made regulations that they thought made them righteous. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You know what's happening here? They're watching and new wine is bursting old wineskins. Just like Jesus said it would. 
back in Mark chapter. You don't have to wash your hands now. You guys, are, you guys aren't holy. You guys aren't righteous. What are you teaching your disciples, Rabbi? How arrogant and foolish it is to ask the giver of the law why his disciples aren't following man-made rules. Nobody in human history has ever come close to obeying the law of God perfectly, all of it, other than Jesus Christ. Which of you convicts me of sin? He would ask these Pharisees in John chapter 8. Show me where I've broken the law, Jesus would say. As the new Adam for a new humanity, Jesus was required to keep every jot and tittle, every word that is, of God's law. And he did perfectly. But for all his devotion to that, Jesus didn't give a rip for man-made rules. He touched lepers. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks. He healed on the Sabbath. He entered graveyards and cast out evil spirits. Beloved, legalism, fed by our preferences, fed by our traditions, that's what they result in, apparently, is idolatry. It's just too subtle to recognize it as idolatry. But Jesus will call it precisely what it is. When we elevate what is human over what is divine, we are blaspheming, period. When we substitute what God actually requires of his church with our traditions and policies and regulations, we are serving the creature rather than the creator. And this is idolatry. Jesus calls it what it is. We always think that compromise is marked by liberalism. And it is, but not any less than the fundamentalism that also is adding to and changing God's word. Unless we think I'm being harsh or out kicking my coverage here, listen to our Lord in verse 6. This is his answer to, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders and, and wash their hands before they eat? Here's how he answers. Verse 6, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Beloved, what an indictment. What an indictment. Is he talking to us? Is he? Jesus Christ lays absolute claim to every millimeter of our existence. Every atom of which we're made. He quotes the prophet Isaiah here from Isaiah 29, 13. And he focuses on two parts of us. Two parts of our bodies, our lips and our hearts. The issue being addressed in Isaiah 29, which Jesus is drawing from, was not the idolatry of worshiping false gods, other gods, per se. It was the disconnect in their alleged worship of God between what they said and who they really were in their hearts. Oh, they kept their feasts, Isaiah will say, year round, year after year after year. They held to their traditions. They held to the feasts, but they had no idea how far they were from God. How does doing something that God prescribed over and over and over again lead you to hypocrisy and idolatry? It's not because it's bad. He's not twisting it. He didn't give bad instruction. Something is wrong in the receiver if what comes from God is being polluted. They had went astray while believing and trying to please God. They had, in effect, created their own religion that God was going to come and turn on its head in order to restore them. The Pharisees are doing precisely what Isaiah was talking about, was prophesying about. Isaiah 29, 13 literally reads that their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. When Jesus interprets this, he says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They thought that properly fearing the Lord could be achieved by putting fences around what God had said with their own wisdom and their own regulations. And in Isaiah 29:16, just a few verses down, God says to his people, listen to this, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay 
that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. That's how he describes their creation of religion and traditions. You hear that? Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. This is the religious leadership of Israel. That's precisely what they're doing. They're turning the word of God on its head, upside down, saying to God, you don't know what you've made. We can handle it. We'll make it. You don't have any understanding. You don't know how we are. You don't know what we're prone to. You didn't prescribe enough. It's fear. It's unbelief that leads to legalism. Nothing else. Your word as it stands is not good enough. We need more or we will mess up. They have told God that he doesn't know how to run his people. That he doesn't know what is righteous and what is pleasing to him. Can you imagine the gall? Well, I hope so because we do it all the time. What is the evidence of that? How did these people get there? Beloved, man-made traditions that were put in place to keep God's law, but because they came from us and not from Him, the people had become idolaters. And any and all worship that comes from a heart like that, no matter how pious, no matter how dedicated, is futile. All that work is in vain. It accomplishes Nothing. God is not glorified by this. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Look, it's one thing if a hypocrite calls you a hypocrite. Right? Everybody in here is a hypocrite on some level. Don't let anybody fool you. Alright? Everybody in here needs Jesus as much as everybody in here needs Jesus. Alright? But when Jesus calls you a hypocrite, what an indictment. What a thing to be called if you're a Pharisee. These are the most dedicated religious men in the world at this time. No question. Not even close. And Jesus just says, you guys are absolute hypocrites. Isaiah was prophesying about you clowns when he spoke. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they honor God with only their lips while their hearts are far from him. They thought they were drawing near and getting closer through their attempts to be righteous. But Jesus says, in vain, for nothing do they worship. Outward worship, outward cleansing is of no value when the heart is defiled and hard. Remember the end of chapter 6. That's what we're dealing with, the hardness of hearts. Hard hearts can't worship. And what defiled them? What made their hearts hard? What made their worship worthless? What what do you think would, would do that to somebody? How bad would the sin have to be? How dirty? How immoral? No, 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 no. Their dedication to their traditions. Their desire to be pious in addition to the law. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Notice here, Jesus doesn't call them hypocrites because they claim to be concerned Or or Jesus didn't call them hypocrites because, for example, they preached against adultery, but they're actually filled with lust, although that's probably also true. He indicts them here for being hypocrites because they claim to be concerned with all their hearts about worshiping God, when in fact they were using God's law to worship their own righteousness through their man-made traditions. When we replace what God actually requires with what is important to us, will eventually come to worship and value ourselves above God, all while singing His praises with our lips. You've probably felt this, that when something happens that you like, that you're comfortable with, that you prefer, it's easier for you to worship, isn't it? You feel better. But our God isn't interested in outward conformity if our hearts aren't soft and broken before Him. And if we will hear our Lord speaking to us because He owns us and is Lord over us, we realize that our affection for our traditions and our preferences is what results in this lack of softness in our hearts. 
Jesus doesn't say that washing your hands before you eat is stupid and worthless and dumb and bad. That's not his point. Right? The point isn't the quality of the tradition. The point is the fact that God has spoken and traditions are man-made. If we here at Moundsville Baptist Church, if we won't listen to this, if we are not willing to break before this, we are in danger of hearing the exact same accusation. When the doctrines of men are taught and valued as though they were the commandments of God, we aren't just off base. We're idolaters. Notice that Jesus calls their traditions doctrines. So well, isn't doctrine like a theology? No, 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 no. Not here. Anything through which you think you are drawing nearer to God that isn't the Holy Spirit through the grace of Jesus Christ is an idol. An idol. When you feel closer to God through a certain style of music and not another, the problem is not in the music. The problem is in the heart. Jesus doesn't change. Who He is for you does not depend on outward things. The surplus of them or the lack of them. This teaching is hard. Remember, we're not meant for the knowledge of good and evil. You remember that? In the garden, we were never meant to eat of that tree's fruit. So if you put rulemaking in our hands, if you leave the creation of religion up to us, we're going to mess it up and defile it every time. We aren't good at that. It was never to be what we were for. Everything was going to come from God and we were going to be fine living a simple, beautiful life with God in his presence six days a week, worshiping him in Sabbath on the seventh. Perfect. No fluff, no extra, no nothing. And we said, no, 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 no. More. I want more. And we said that before we were born with sin in us. We are human. He is God. We need something to keep us and save us or we are going to go off the rails and worship idols all while thinking we're worshiping Him. Jesus indicts the entire religion that they've built from God's law on their man-made rules. That's what He's doing in verse 9. And He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, you see that? But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void, so he's getting specific now, the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So there's a way, apparently, to get around giving God his due and obeying him and commit idolatry by creating different standards than he gave that actually use his name and his word as an alleged basis or justification for doing so. There's more than one type of legalism that distorts God's word. The most basic type is probably the most dangerous the belief that we can be justified before God by our own obedience and good works when God's Word teaches very clearly that we're only made right with God by grace through faith in His Son apart from works. So if we're trusting in any other righteousness than the righteousness of Jesus to make us acceptable to God, we're legalists. That's one form of legalism. Another kind of legalism is the kind Jesus was exposing here in the beginning of chapter 7. Elevating our traditions to the point where they're allowed to bind the consciences of God's people, especially when God has made them free. This happens when we add to his word where he has not spoken. Jesus condemns this. It makes hypocrites. It doesn't make more devoted followers. And beloved, we need to hear this because we do this. We do what he's talking about at the beginning of chapter 7. I know I've mentioned it several times. I just want you to hear me. 
Anything that is man-made. Anything that is man-made. Holidays, patriotism, all these kinds of things. When those things become the markers of whether or not a church is faithful or someone is faithful or a devoted worshiper of God and follower of Jesus, we are committing idolatry. It doesn't matter what our intentions are. It doesn't matter what the outward or the outside looks like. It doesn't matter. We are legalistic in the very areas where we think we're particularly Christian. And one of the ways you know this is when you try to speak against it. And try to get people to consider, maybe that's idolatry. How dare you call that idolatry? I do that for the Lord. Did he ask? Did he ask? Then whose idea was it? Jesus addressed that kind of legalism in verses 6 through 8. But now... He addresses a third type of legalism in verses 9 through 13, which one of my commentaries called loopholism. I like that. This is when we try to come up with pious ways to get around what God has commanded. Trying to adhere to the command while trampling the spirit of it under our feet. For example, here's one example. The text will give us another one just to show you how deep this rabbit hole went. The rabbis would help people. There there was a a prohibition of excessive travel in the law on the Sabbath. You could travel a Sabbath day's journey, not anything beyond that. The rabbis would help people get around those prohibitions, right, because that's a very or relatively short distance. The rabbis would help people get around it by saying that, listen, if you know that you need to travel on the Sabbath and it's longer than a Sabbath day's journey, here's what you do. A couple days ahead of time, go on your route to all the places where you're going to be and put something a personal item that you possess, put it there. Then, when you travel on the Sabbath, technically, you're not leaving your home. Because that's that's like you own property there, so you can say, this is my real estate, so I'm not technically traveling that far away from home. These are the same people that created additional laws so that you didn't break the laws that exist. But then, on the other ones... They'll create loopholes that water it down so that you can obey it. So Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The first thing God's holy, perfect law that is righteous and good should do is crush you and I. Not challenge us to do it. We can't do it. It's too good, it's too high, it's too holy, it's too perfect. You and I cannot do this. Legalism says, yeah, I can, watch me. Right? I'll just, I'll I'll either add to it or I'll find ways around it, but I'll do it. Jesus says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Corbin was another loophole they used to... Get around the law. Corbin spoke of giving or setting aside one's private property or personal wealth to God. The rabbis had twisted it, though, to get around one of the most important laws of God, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. So notice here in the text, they didn't keep the law of God and their tradition. They rejected God's law and replaced it with their tradition. That's how God viewed it. That's how God saw it. Their traditions had become a way to keep from obeying the law of God, whether they were trying to get around it or go beyond it. Both are not obeying it, right? Jesus refers to the fifth commandment in verse 10, for Moses said, then in verse 11, as I tried to call out, but you say, those are categorical differences. One was God's law given through Moses, his binding word fulfilled only by Christ. The other was human opinion through the Pharisees and scribes. One has divine authority. One has zero authority. Verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So there was a method, Corbin, of deferred giving where a person could promise that at death, all of his material possessions and worldly goods, he could dedicate that to the work of God. So during his lifetime, much of what he had dedicated, he couldn't use For anything else. It was committed to God. This meant that in the name of being pious, 
A person could escape the obligation to care for his parents if they got too ill or too frail to support themselves. That's what Corbin was for. So you'd say, Mom, I'd, I'd love to help you, but all my stuff is Corbin, so I can't help you. What's strange is that Corbin regulations actually allowed a person to use wealth that had been committed to God for himself during his lifetime, but you couldn't use it for anybody else. So this way people could get out of honoring their father and mother. And again, notice the contrast between regulations that were created allegedly because they didn't even want the chance breaking a law, and then the same people creating loopholes so you could get around other laws. Again, we are not good at this. No wonder Jesus calls them hypocrites. Their hearts aren't devoted to God, but they're really good at talking like they're devoted to God. And Jesus says such worship is worthless. It's in vain. It it isn't neutral. It's not like it's just not wise. It voids God's word. That's a powerful thing to say. Like, I didn't even know you could do that, right? Notice the wording there in verse 13. Making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. That's just one way they voided his word. Jesus says, how many ways were they doing it? There were many more. We, In other words, we better be very careful with what we hand down to the next generation, beloved, and bind on their consciences. We better be very careful. Very careful with what we're passionate to make sure gets continued. Are we voiding the word of God by our traditions? And this has to keep happening, has to keep happening, has to keep happening. Or you've lost it. You, you've lost it. You ever notice how quick we talk about losing the gospel when it comes to something that we've done for 50 years not happening anymore? Oh, it's all going out the window. The church is crumbling down. Why? Did Jesus leave? Did God quit being God? No, what we set up is changing. That, that, that's a, that's a, again, that's a massive indictment. To say that by your traditions you void the word of God because in Isaiah 55, 11, God is clear that his word will not return to him void. So if that can't happen to the word, God is talking about what we're doing, how we regard it in our own hearts. God won't make his own word void, but we will. And what is it to make God's word void? It's not just Changing it to say something it's not saying. It's adding to it in the name of something good. Right? They didn't have a tradition to like sleep with other people's spouses. The tradition was make sure you're clean before you eat. How does God view the things then? That to us mean everything, but to him mean nothing. How does God actually view that? You are voiding my word. When you teach us doctrine what I have not commanded. What does that cover? We can't nurse those things then. We can't nurse those things. Our words will choke out His. Here's what's at issue here. As it pertains to the church. As it pertains to God's people. Where does ultimate authority lie within the church? That's what's at issue with traditions. What actually has authority in the church? Is it in Scripture alone, which is what everybody says? Or is it in Scripture and tradition? What we say is not what determines the answer. Of course, we'll say Scripture. Our practices, our attitudes will reflect what the answer is. If it's both Scripture and tradition... Eventually, tradition will trump everything because it will be what gives or determines the binding interpretation of God's word, which means it isn't it isn't both at all. Then it's just tradition. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Why won't we listen to Jesus? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. How are they hypocrites? They create man-made doctrines that they teach as God's commandments. That's how they're hypocritical. Right? Beware the leaven of that. And and if a little leaven leavens the whole lump, we better hold very loosely to our traditions. Very loosely. Very loosely. 
Not because in and of themselves they're bad or dumb or wrong. That's not the issue. Notice what Jesus does here. Again, why are they like this? That's that's what he's going to go after here. Why are such pious people so concerned with their morals and behavior and religious practices and traditions? Why are they idolatrous hypocrites? How is that even possible? You think it would have made them the opposite. Jesus goes straight for the jugular in verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Some translations out here, he who has an ear or has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered the house, and, or I'm sorry, let me stop at 16, 15 for a moment. The wording here, when he calls all the people to himself, and see, Jesus is giving an oracle from God. Jesus is setting himself up as the one who has authority, has the one to speak, to declare what the word of God is, his word. So this is an authoritative pronouncement that should bind the conscience of God's people, of the church. He's taking on the entire rabbinical system of ritual purification especially all their specific food and cleansing regulations. And what is he saying? He's saying, you think you're defiled by what goes into you. That's why you have to wash your hands. That's why you can't eat and drink certain things. As though you are intrinsically pure, but you get infected by what you eat, or if your hands are dirty, or if you're contaminated by Gentiles or something. But that's not true. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. So now we know that's not why God gave purity laws in the first place. Right? But there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. What about, nope. Yeah, but what about, uh, nothing. Jesus said that. So if you're going to add to nothing, now you've crossed ways with Jesus. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Beloved, listen to Jesus. The problem, the reason they're defiled, that we're defiled, is not something on the outside of us. It's inside of us. What's in us defiles us, not what is outside of us. And we know how revolutionary of a teaching this was, how much new wine Jesus was pouring out when he spoke because of the next verses in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable and apparently asked him in a challenging way because of verse 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since, so here's why. It enters not his heart, which is what God is looking on when it comes to defile and clean, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Mark adds an editorial comment. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man... Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Sensuality comes from within. I thought we were supposed to blame women for that. Right? It's their fault that we lust. No, it's not. But boy, that's what we make rules on, isn't it? Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. To his disciples, Jesus explains why we're not defiled by what goes into us, but what comes out of us. And it's because food and drink do not enter our hearts. They have nothing to do with our spiritual selves, the real us. All the purity regulations were not speaking then of the contaminating effect of food and drinks and dust or dirt, or as we'll see, God willing, next week, even ethnicity, what we consume is digested and eliminated. How in the world could it defile us? And yet these are the very things that become the basis for our rulemaking. 
Those things. The things Jesus clearly says, that doesn't defile you. But all our rules are based on 21 to 23. Prohibiting those things as though they come from the outside. And Jesus is saying they don't come from the outside. They come from within you. Everything God made is good. It should be received with thanksgiving. You twist it. Right? You use cocoa leaf to get high. You use booze to get blitzed. You use women to lust. I didn't do that. You did that. We think we're only contaminated. We, and we think this as believers, I think, often. We think that we're only contaminated if we eat this or drink that. So you, you can go in a Christian bookstore and find, like, books on Diets, like how to eat biblically. How do you praise God for a delicious cheeseburger if if you can't? (laughs) We think we're only contaminated if we eat this or drink that or look at that, right? That contaminated me. Or go there. Or stay here. So those are the things we have to keep out if we want to remain clean. When Jesus said the whole dietary system of Israel was worthless in terms of producing righteousness. In terms of making people pure and washing away their defilement. So do we see how dangerous it is to create rules about what we can eat or drink as though those are the things that defile us? Are we understanding Jesus? The things we eat or drink, the things we, this is not what defiles us. We are disagreeing with Jesus. We're telling him we're more aware of what defiles us than he is. See, I I just want to stay safe. Then trust Jesus. Are you putting the safety of your soul in your own hands, in your own wisdom? Or are you trusting Jesus to say, if he didn't prohibit it, I'll trust him. Now, you may need in your own life and your own impulses to say, I can't go near that. I can't look at that. I, that's fine. Just don't put that on other people and on those things. That's on you. That's on you. That's in you. You're the one that needs a Savior, not just that person that's doing that thing, right? We need a Savior. What defiled me, what separated me from God is in here, not out there. Thus, in verse 19, he declared all foods clean. I love what Tim Keller says here. Listen to this. Unlike Matthew, Luke, and John, Mark almost never makes editorial comments or interpretations in his book. So when he does make an interpretive comment, it's really significant. And he makes one in this story. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. It doesn't read Jesus said all foods were clean. If it did, then maybe the meaning would be Jesus says you don't need to worry about these foods so much, everything's all right, go ahead, eat them. Jesus would be saying that cleanliness laws were like an outdated idea and let's get beyond them. He'd be giving an authoritative opinion on the subject, but that's not what happened. It reads, Jesus declared. Jesus pronounced. Greek experts and scholars agree. Jesus is saying, as of now, I make these foods clean. I who called the world into being, I who called the storm to a halt, I who called a girl back from death, now I call all foods clean. In order to understand the magnitude of this, you have to remember that Jesus has an incredibly high regard for the word of God. He considers it binding even on himself. In Matthew's gospel, he says that not a jot or a tittle, that is not a letter, will pass away from the word of God until all is fulfilled. Now, the cleanliness laws are part of the word of God. Jesus would never look at any part of it and say, this was wrong, so let's not do this anymore. So what he is saying here is that the cleanliness laws laws have been fulfilled. That their purpose to get you and I to move towards spiritual purification has been carried out in him. The reason you don't have to follow them as you once did is that they've been fulfilled. God has been satisfied in those laws by the obedience of Jesus. What an incredible thing to say. To declare all foods clean. End quote. Jesus couldn't have agreed more with the religious leaders and the people of Israel that we are unclean before God. That we're unfit for his presence. But he couldn't have disagreed more with them about the source of that uncleanliness. And how to address it. 
We're defiled by what comes out of us because what comes out of us comes from our hearts. For from within, verse 21, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Not fermented grapes or barley, not the shape of someone else's body, not complex carbohydrates. We make rules about what people should wear as though people's appearances is what defile us. But we are not defiled by what's outside of us. That doesn't say anything about whether or not a person should be modest. That, that's a different area. This is about what defiles us. We're not defiled by what's outside of us. Not only do food and drink not stain the heart, refraining from certain ones don't prevent the heart from being stained. That's how we make void the Word of God. When we say, that food and that drink defiles me, I will not have it. Jesus would say, no, it doesn't. So if you make a rule on that, you're avoiding my Word. I already told you it's not what goes into you that defiles you. See how dangerous this is. Because those are the laws we hammer on. Oh, you don't do that, do you? You don't go there, do you? Right? That's Christianity. It's, it's defined by what we don't do. As though everything that can defile a person is outside of them. So if you just remove a person from those things, they'll be fine. Ask Lot and his daughters if separating from society will result in everything going okay. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you've got to read Genesis. Okay? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, and you're reading it for the first time, your jaw's going to hit the floor. You say, that's in the Bible? Yeah. That's in the Bible. That's 19, 18 chapters out from the garden. And we're already... So... These men honestly believe that certain foods and dust from the sand and all those things were the source of their defilement. This is why we can't have fellowship with God. Right? This is why we're unclean. There were purity laws. No mistake that there were regulations about cleansing. So obviously God had some reason for these laws. But we're finding here the laws were not set up because God thought certain foods or dirt from the ground are actually what defiles us. He set up these laws to point to our need for actual cleansing from the inside out so that we might be set apart as his people. What Jesus reveals here is that true cleansing requires something to happen to us then on the inside. This means that no amount of outward cleansing will make us clean before God. No amount of traditions or loopholes or regulations we create will clean our hearts. None of these things will perfect or purify our worship. None of these things can replace the devotion to God that He's actually commanded. Because defilement comes from the very core of our beings. From inside of us. So it will do us no good to try to create more standards, to keep adding laws and traditions and regulations and loopholes in order to keep trying to prove that we're devoted to God. We don't need corrected. We don't need mere course correction or better directions. Our problem is not a mere lack of information or things to do. Our hearts are defiled. We'll defile the law of God. That's how defiled we are. We need cleansed from the inside out. That's how a person gets saved. Jesus washes them. Jesus is telling them and he's telling us that we need to be cleansed by another, by an outside source, because we can't cleanse ourselves. Our hearts are not clean. Our hands are not clean, no matter how spiritually conservative we are. All that we do and create to show or to prove our devotion to God that goes beyond his word is not going to make us more clean than Jesus can make us. It isn't going to make us more spiritual, more devoted, more glorifying to God. In fact, it's going to work against being conformed by God's grace to the image of His Son. God wants us to look like Jesus, not like our idea of a good person. Our need for salvation is so much deeper than our good deeds or our good intentions can reach. That washcloth can't hit those spots. That mop can't get back in to that corner. Beloved, Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's righteousness. If we want to be clean, He must wash us with His blood and His righteousness. It must happen to us, not by us. 
And he's teaching his disciples, he's teaching us that traditions and man-made regulations are not neutral to that cause. They're dangerous because our minds will twist even good and well-intentioned things into idols that will prevent us from worshiping God. Jesus links traditions and man-made regulations here with what defiles us and leads to hypocrisy and legalism, not with what can help with our cleansing. He doesn't commend it at all. Only Jesus can address our need for cleansing. So we're not defiled when we don't keep our traditions. That doesn't separate us from God. That doesn't make us unclean. We don't move away from God if we don't get it our way. None of that brought us close to Him, and none of it will separate us from Him. We aren't drawn closer to God by the things we create and attach spiritual necessity or value to. Jesus teaches us that tradition and man-made regulations create hypocrites who worship God with their lips while their hearts are far from Him. That tradition and man-made regulations make us think we're clean when we're still defiled because we're not trusting in the power of Jesus alone to cleanse us. Jesus Christ reveals that we are not made clean before God and able to worship Him perfectly by observing spiritual traditions or our order behavior. Instead, He must cleanse us from the inside out. We must be cleansed by Jesus or we will never be clean. Ever. This is the message we bring to the Ohio Valley. That cleansing is available for everyone, of everything, through Jesus Christ. What we celebrate here this morning in the Lord's Supper reminds us of this fact again and again and again. Whatever it takes, beloved. Whatever it takes. As long as it's not compromise. And we'll let Jesus decide what compromise is. We bring the message of cleansing. We should default to thinking we ought to change things. Because we're still flesh. The Spirit is in us now, but the flesh wages an active war against our redeemed souls. So even what comes out of me that's from the Spirit is still rubbing up against my flesh. So we ought not to trust ourselves. We ought not to trust our own preferences and traditions and desires. The potential for what comes out of us to be contaminated is too great to rely on. No matter what changes. And we could make some changes. We can change a lot of things. What do you want to be a part of? Do you want to be a part of preserving a past that's going to pass away? Or a part of building the future that Jesus is building in a new heavens and a new earth where they need no sun because he is the light? Don't take change so personally. Right? Don't take it so personally. Why would you take it personally? Is our church set up to reach the people in our community today in 2021? Or is it set up to continue reaching the people it always has? And if the answer is the latter, then change. It's very simple. Right? We're here to proclaim the gospel to Moundsville. That's it. We aren't here to preserve our preferences. That's probably been said a million times by different men than me in some form or another. We're a church. We're a church. If we're holding on to anything so tightly that if it goes away, we can't worship. We can't feel Christian. We've created an idol. Period. So let the rushing wind of God blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. Lord Jesus, cleanse us. Cleanse your people. His cleansing is yours now if you come to Him by grace through faith. It doesn't matter how dirty you are. The more dirty you are, all you'll prove is how good Jesus is at cleaning. He washes stains away. He washes the stains of lost people away that believe in Him. He washes away the stains of people that do believe in Him and can't get it right, like me. So come and be cleansed by Jesus. Be cleansed by Jesus. There's no other way to get clean. 
And I'd like our church to be clean.